Well, good morning, River City. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Bran. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, excited as well to continue our series in the Gospel of John together. We are getting close to the end of the book. Some of you thought we'd never get there, but we are indeed close. In fact, we're in that final last section of John's Gospel. The, the most important part, the part where John talks about Jesus his death and his resurrection. But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's important to understand that everything we've studied so far in John's gospel has been building up to this point. You see, in the the first half of the book, John spent the first half of the book focusing on Jesus's public ministry, recounting for us how Jesus went around teaching and preaching and performing miraculous signs. And, And all of that, John helps us to see, what he wants to show us is that all that was meant to help us see that Jesus was not just a a prophet. He wasn't just a wise teacher. He wasn't just kind of some spiritual guru, but that Jesus, in fact, claimed that he was God, the Messiah, come to rescue and redeem people from the the ultimate enemies of Satan and sin and death. And he called people to a faith in him. That was the, the means for their salvation. But then we saw how John in the second half of the book, John kind of zooms in on just the final few days of Jesus's ministry where he kind of pulls back from the crowds and invests his time with his, the, his disciples in the last little bit. And at the heart of that section, we saw how John's, Jesus, what he was doing was he was preparing the disciples for the kind of life and ministry he was calling them to lead after his death. Uh, essentially what John's doing in that second half of the book is he's, he's showing us what it looks like when you have a real heart-level faith in Jesus, that it's not just this head-level thing that, you, that has like informational knowledge, but it's this heart-level thing that transforms your life in real significant ways. And what we see John doing in this final section is he, he's pulling all of that stuff together. And as he talks to us about Jesus' death and his resurrection in these last few chapters of the gospel, he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to help us to see that, that Jesus' death and resurrection, it's not only the ultimate proof that everything he said about himself in the first part of the book was true, but it's also the source of the kind of power and motivation that you need to, to do and to live the way that he calls us to in the second half of the book. And so the the person and the work of Jesus, all of it culminates in his death and his resurrection. And that's what John's trying to help us see in this last part of the book. And and as we began studying this final section last week, one of the things that we saw is that that what John wants to make real clear is that although on the surface it might seem like Jesus is kind of just like a subject to the whims of all these faithless and fickle people, What John really wants to make absolutely sure we understand is that Jesus is the one who's actually in control of everything that's going on. From the moment of his betrayal by Judas to his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane and even Peter's denial, as we saw last week, to the trial we're going to see with Pilate this morning, to his crucifixion and even his resurrection, Jesus is in charge of everything. He is not a helpless victim caught in some evil plot, nor is he just some merely some willing participant. He's the one who's orchestrated everything. In other words, what John's trying to help you to see is that Jesus is not a pawn. In fact, he is the king. And it's the kingship of Jesus that's front and center in our passage this morning. The word king and kingdom, John uses it to talk about Jesus almost a dozen times in these few short verses that we're going to read. 
And so in recounting Jesus' trial before the Roman governor Pilate, what John wants to make absolutely crystal clear is that even though Pilate mocks him for it, and even though the Jews have rejected him as their own, Jesus is indeed the true king. He is the king, and he's sitting ruling and reigning on the throne, even though it looks like he is not. And as we study this morning, I want to just highlight for you three things that John wants us to see about the kind of king that Jesus is. He's not just the true king, that's the objective truth, but John shows us the kind of king he is. We're going to see that he's a, he's a strange king, he's a sovereign king, and he is most of all a substitutionary king. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive in together, see what God's word has to say to us. God, thanks so much for you. And for our time together as we might come to study your word. And we just want to come as we do every week, Jesus, humbly before you. Might you speak to us through your word. Might you correct us where we are wrong. Might you shape and renew our hearts. And might you call us, Jesus, to faith in you, the true king. Help us to see, Jesus, you, uh, in John's letter this morning, help us to see Jesus as the, the true king, as the strange king, the sovereign king, and the substitutionary king that we need. And so, God, I don't have any power to make that happen, um, but you do. And I pray that the goodness, Jesus, of your kingly rule and reign might be good news to us this morning. And so to that end, we ask that you'd meet us and that you'd show that to us, God. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 19, verse 16. It begins this way. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. But now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and he asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate asked then, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death that he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is the truth? retorted Pilate. With that, he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and he said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. 
As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The chief priests answered, And so finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, and the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Like we saw last week in Jesus' arrest, the Jewish religious leaders, they arrest Jesus at night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and having found him guilty in their own kind of illegal nighttime courts, the passage this morning begins, or the Jewish leaders, they reconvene the following morning, and they bring Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate so he can carry out their desired punishment, which we learn in verse 31, right, is execution, death, right? And for the most part, what you have to understand is that when it came to the Roman Empire, uh, as long as you paid your taxes and didn't cause trouble, you could kind of do what you wanted. Right? You could have your own religious laws, you could have your own uh, courts, you could have your own punishments. You could kind of do what you wanted, except when it came to capital punishment. You see, the right to put people to death, the Romans reserved for themselves. And so the Jewish leaders, they bring Jesus to Pilate so that he might carry out their wishes. We see later on in the passage that the, the, the real reason they want Jesus dead is because he's claimed to be God, right? In their eyes, he's committed blasphemy, the most serious sin of all in the Jewish culture. But, but they know that Pilate does not give, like he does not care at all about their Jewish laws. And he is certainly not going to want to get involved, let alone have some dude killed over some religious dispute. And so they have to kind of come up with some charge against Jesus that Pilate will care about. They have to kind of manufacture a charge against him that that Pilate can't ignore, right? That he's going to have to deal with, that he can't just brush off. And so they essentially accuse Jesus of treason, Right, and they say that he's claimed to be a king who's in opposition to Caesar, which when it comes to the Roman Empire, that's the ultimate capital offense, right? Like the Caesars were known to just have entire families and groups of people murdered on the, like, the mere basis of just like mere speculation about treason. And even though it's not spelled out in our passage directly here, we know that that's the charge that these religious leaders levied against Jesus. One, because uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he tells us that's exactly what happened. Verse, chapter 23, verse 2 of Luke's gospel, he says that they began to accuse him, saying that we found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king, right? So Luke tells us overtly that that's the claim that they make, but, 
But also we just see that kind of naturally here in John's gospel. In verse 33, right, the very next thing Pilate does is he asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate only asks him that if that's what he's been accused of. And the way that Jesus responds to Pilate's question here and the charges being levied against him brings us to the first thing that I want to show you about the kind of king John's telling us that Jesus is. Right? The first thing he wants us to see is that Jesus is a strange king. After some back and forth in verses 33 and 34, Jesus kind of finally answers Pilate's question. Verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom's from another place. Pilate responds, so you are a king then. You do admit it, right? Jesus says back to him, you say that I'm a king, right? That's your words. That's your words, Pilate, not necessarily mine. He says, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate retorts. And then he goes back out. See, to understand that whole interaction, you have to realize, though, that when Pilate is asking Jesus if he's the king of the Jews, Pilate is not asking a theological question. Right? Pilate is not asking, Jesus, are you this Messiah that the Jews have been talking about? Right? Are you the Savior that they've been longing for? He does not care at all. That's not the question he's asking. You see, instead, the question that Pilate's asking is a political one. Right? He's asking Jesus, are you, a, are you a political kind of king? Right? Are you a rival who's trying to undermine Roman power? Are you a threat to, Caesar, to the Caesars? And Jesus' answer to Pilate, I love, it's just like very deliberately ambiguous. It's kind of multifaceted, right? On the one hand, Jesus seems to affirm that he is indeed a king who has a kingdom. And then on the other hand, he makes very clear that his kingdom is not one that's of this world. It's from another place. And so to be clear, when Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world, he's not implying that his kingdom doesn't have any implications for this world. But what he is saying is that it's not like any of the kingdoms of the world. It has an entirely different origin and purpose. It's a, it's a very strange kingdom in Pilate's eyes. So in other words, what Jesus is trying to tell Pilate, he says, yes, I am a king, but I'm not that kind of king. I'm not a political king. My kingdom isn't about getting or maintaining political power. If it was, he says, then my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But as it is, they're not. In fact, Jesus is actively avoiding that kind of a fight. We saw last week in chapter 18, right? When Jesus is being arrested, he specifically commands Peter to put down his sword. In chapter 6 earlier, we saw after Jesus had fed the 5,000, John tells us in verse 15 of chapter 6 that Jesus knew that the crowd was going to try to make him king by force. And so Jesus retreats from them. He sneaks away right, so that they can't make him king by force. See, Jesus' kingdom is not one that uses political power to bring about change. See, instead, the transforming power of Jesus' kingdom, he tells Pilate, it's found in the truth. Verse 37, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Remember, all the way back in chapter 1, John began the whole gospel by telling us that Jesus was the light of the world. That he comes shining into the darkness of our world as the true light that reveals the truth about God and about humanity and about the way things really are. 
Missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin summed it up this way when he said, Jesus is the true light that shines on every human being. There is no other light that enables us to see things as they really are, and things really are as they're shown to be in the light of Jesus, because he is the one through whom they all came to be. You see, when Jesus says that his is a kingdom of truth, he's not saying that he that he just merely says true things or that his kingdom is an honest one. What he's saying is that he's the king of truth itself. He's the one who defines it. He's the one who reveals it. The truth is his truth to show. See, but like the Jewish leaders who already rejected Jesus as that kind of a king, right? They were looking, they were looking for a political king to rescue them from Rome. Pilate's not interested in a truth-based king. He's not interested in a spiritual kind of king. Right? And his words to the Jewish leaders at the end of verse 38 reveal that while he may not get the, the depth of what Jesus said, he certainly gets the gist of it. Right? Whatever kind of king Jesus is, he's not a political one. Right? This whole, this whole like, charge of treason, that ain't it, bro. It's not in there, right? That's the charges, they don't stick. The iron of it all, though, is that while the thing that Pilate and the Roman Empire were most concerned about, the thing that the Jews longed after so desperately, a political leader, right? Like, they were so worried about this pol competing political power, they were all blissfully unaware that the thing that actually has the power to transform people and empires is actually the truth. You see, when you have political power, you can force people to do what you want. But you can only do that for a little while. And you can only do it on an, in an external kind of way until people just can't take it anymore and they revolt. See, but the power of Jesus' kingdom is altogether different. See, see, truth doesn't force people to do anything. It doesn't force a conformity of external realities. See, the truth transforms people from the inside out. It shows people how things really work. And it invites, and it calls, and it draws people to live differently based on what is true. You see, so often I think people tend to look at the Bible, and they, it's easy to look at this book and see, like, this is like a really old, outdated book. It has a bunch of rules and regulations that keep people from living their best lives or being their truest selves. And yet the claim of the Scriptures is that God is not only the one who created and made everything, but that he is immeasurably good. That he longs for the good of his people. And if that is true, then what that means is that the way his word says that life works best, it is not a prison, but in fact, rather, it's the, like it's the path to the best life of all. The one who made it is showing you how it works best. He's giving you the cheat sheet. He's showing you behind the curtains, this is the way to life and freedom and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. This is the way. And the early Christians in the Roman Empire, they really believed that. They really did. And as they saw the truth about God and about life that Jesus revealed to them through his word, and as they testified to that truth with lives that were lived in alignment with his kingdom of truth, it changed their world. 
One commentator sums it up this way. He says, what Christianity brought was not simply a spiritual movement, but a whole new culture, a kind of counterculture that was more attractive than the dominant one. The Christian approach to the poor and to sexuality and to the family, it was so attractive and life-giving and compelling that it slowly transformed the Roman world. So much so that by the time Constantine came along a couple hundred years later and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, he wasn't doing anything revolutionary or provocative. He was just getting on the bandwagon. You see, political power, it has the ability to forcefully conform people externally for a limited time. But the truth It has the power to transform people from the inside out. And that's the kind of power that Jesus' kingdom is based on. You see, he's a strange king. And the way of his kingdom is unlike the kingdoms of the world. It is altogether different. It has a different origin and a different purpose and an altogether different power. He's a strange king. But John doesn't want you just to see that Jesus is a strange king. He wants you to see as well that Jesus is a sovereign king. See, the background, the context of this whole story, this whole interchange between uh, the Jewish leaders and between Pilate and the Roman government that Jesus seems to be caught in the middle of right here, it's this giant power struggle that's been going on for a hundred years Right? In the grand scheme of things, Pilate is basically Roman middle management. Right? He's like not actually a guy who has any real power or authority. He's just like somewhere in the middle of the totem pole. Right? He's got a bunch of people above him. And like most middle managers, Pilate's trying to climb the ladder, right? He'd gotten a little bit of a taste of power, and he was hungry for more. The problem is that pretty much every historian will tell you is that it wasn't going well for Pilate. He was objectively a terrible leader, And not only that, he let power get to his head, and so pretty much every historian describes him as an incredibly harsh and spiteful governor. And so the Jews hated this guy even more than they hated most of the other governors who had ruled over them for the past hundred years or so. And they were actively trying to get rid of Pilate, just like they'd done with one of his predecessors about 20 years prior, right? By sending this kind of delegation of of people to, to Rome to complain about him and got this other guy got deposed. And so Pilate is very aware of this kind of soft power that the, that the religious leaders have, right? And see, the one thing Rome does not want is trouble. Listen, people, do what you want. Pay your taxes and leave us alone. But don't cause problems. See, Pilate's already on thin ice with the emperor Tiberius at the time because the guy who'd gotten Pilate his job had recently been killed for suspected treason himself. And so Pilate is on thin ice with everyone. One wrong step, and he'd be gone, just like his predecessors. And so these two groups are locked in this kind of epic power struggle. Everyone is desperately trying to get more power. And at the same time, they're all deeply afraid of losing whatever power they have. And that desire is controlling everything that they do. We saw back in chapter 11 how it was the Jewish leaders' love of power and their fear that Rome would take whatever power they had away that was driving their hatred of Jesus. 
At the same time, we see the same things true of Pilate here. He had already determined that Jesus was objectively innocent. He finds no basis for these claims of treason. And yet he goes ahead and he has Jesus brutally flogged because he's just trying to appease some people. He's like, listen, I did something. At least I did something. Can we just like move on now? But they're not satisfied with that. And so in verse 12, they tell Pilate basically, listen, bro, if you don't kill Jesus... We're going to go tell Emperor Tiberius that somebody in Judea out here is claiming that they're a king and that you didn't do anything about it. And at that point, Pilate's like, oh, okay, checkmate then, huh? And so we see that this pursuit of power and the fear of losing it is controlling everything that people are doing in this passage. Everyone except Jesus, that is. See, the irony is that he's actually the only one who has any real power. And he's not the one clamoring for it. The religious leaders, they, they think they have power over Jesus. But in verse 32, we read that even they're turning him over to the Romans to be crucified. Verse 32 says, took place to fulfill what Jesus himself had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus is not a pawn in their game. He's the king. And in the midst of all this seeming uncertainty, he is exercising his sovereign authority. They are not using him. If anything, he's the one who's using them. Everything that they're doing is part of his sovereign plan. And although it becomes clear by the end of Pilate, by the end of the passage, that Pilate's kind of lost this political battle with the Jews. He still seems to kind of cling on to this idea that he's at least got some power over Jesus. Verse 10, he tells Jesus, you don't realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you, but yet Jesus responds to him, you would have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Peter looks at this man who's desperately clinging to whatever kind of power he can have. And he says, whatever power you have, it doesn't come from Rome. It doesn't come from the emperor there who claims to be God. Whatever power and authority you have has been given to you by the one true God. It comes from heaven. One commentator sums it up this way. He says, Pilate was supremely aware of wielding the authority of the most powerful man on earth, Tiberius Caesar of Rome, and yet Jesus is conscious of an authority infinitely greater than any wielded by Pilate or Caesar or Caiaphas or the Jewish mobs. It was an authority in which whose hands these human forces were but reeds in the wind. You see, they had positional authority, but Jesus is the one who carried true authority. See, all the people in this passage, they think they have power. But they don't. Not one that's compared to his. And so while everyone else in the story is clamoring for power, desperately trying to get more of it, or afraid of losing what they have, the real sovereign king of everything, although he's mocked and beaten and bloodied at their hands, is actually still sitting on the throne. And from a, pow- a position that looks like utter weakness, he is in fact exercising his sovereign authority. And what you need to see, what you cannot miss, is that the exercise of his authority doesn't look like trying to flaunt his power. It looks like willingly giving it up for others. 
See, that brings us to the last thing John's trying to show us in this passage about the, the kind of king Jesus is. He's, he's not just a strange king, and he's not just a sovereign king. He is a substitutionary king. See, Pilate, he determined Jesus' innocence, and he's clearly not some political threat. So in an attempt to kind of let everyone involved save face and just move on, right, get this situation behind them, he offers to honor this Passover tradition and release a, a prisoner back to the Jews. And he, he gives them what he thinks is going to be this no-brainer choice, right? Jesus, who by all accounts has done literally nothing wrong, or this guy named Barabbas, who verse 40 tells us was an insurrectionist, an actual traitor. The other gospel writers, they add that he was a robber and a murderer to, to, to boot. And yet when Pilate asked the crowd, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shout back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. They would rather have a man who might murder and rob them than one who was willing to die in their place. And so later that day, Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross. And he died in the place of a man who was willing to kill to get authority and to get power and to get freedom. And yet the truth is, I think John really wants us to see, is that you and I are a lot more like Barabbas than we'd like to admit. See, Barabbas' name, it's not an accident, right? God didn't put, put that as part of his plan for funsies. See, Barabbas' name, it means the son of a father. It's like the equivalent of guy, right? He's just a guy. But he's a guy just like the rest of us. You see, because we're a lot more like him than we'd like to admit, only we're not trying to overthrow an earthly government. We're trying to overthrow the actual real king of everything. And we think that we know what's going to give us life and freedom and joy. And we think we know the best way to fulfillment and satisfaction. And we think we would do a better job at being God than him. And so we're willing to overthrow God to get it. One commentator put it this way, we are not just stray sheep or wandering prodigals. We are rebels taken, captured, arrested with weapons in our hands. See, that's the very heart of what sin is. Sin is not bad behavior. Sin is at its root the rejection of God's good rule and authority. We reject his kingly rule and we seek to enthrone ourselves. We think that we're better at his job than he is. And because we think we can do a better job of being God than God, we're not just traitors. We're blasphemers as well. You see, what that means is that the very charges that Jesus faced at the judgment seat before Caiaphas and before Pilate. It's actually the charges you and I all face before the real judgment seat of the true king, the true judge. See, that makes this passage all the more beautiful and compelling because in it then we don't just see Jesus taking Barabbas' place. We see him taking our own. The real son of God dies in place of all these sons of fathers, all these random guys, the true insurrectionists and blasphemers like Barabbas and the religious leaders and like you and like me. You see, Jesus is not just a strange king. He's not just a sovereign king. He is, in fact, our substitutionary king. He dies in our place. John Stott sums it up this way. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And yet the essence of the gospel and the message of salvation is that God 
substituted himself for man. That's at the heart of the good news about the gospel. That you and I are blasphemers and traitors. That we're rebels against the, the real, true king. And yet the king himself comes and takes our place. It's the good news of a strange king, of a sovereign king, of a substitutionary king. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. So we're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body and his blood were broken and shed for us as he took our place as he died the death that you and I deserve to die, as he was accused wrongly, he stood in our place for us. And so if you put your faith in Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as this joyful reminder of all that he's done for you. The strange, sovereign, substitutionary king come to take your place for you. Let it fill you with love and joy and like a longing to live for him. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what it means to follow him and if he really is the king he claims to be. And I just want to encourage you, like you are absolutely welcome here. And your questions are welcome and your process is welcome. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. See, God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you are the true king. And you're my substitutionary king. And the only hope that I have is you. So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is. And River City is, and we'd love to help you get to know him. So as we celebrate communion together, as we sing, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at this morning, talk with God. See, at the heart of John's gospel is this desire that we wouldn't just have a head-level knowledge about Jesus, but we would have the kind of heart-level faith in him that transforms our lives. And so the question he is inviting us to ask in all the stories is, do you know about Jesus? Or do you believe in him? Is it a head-level thing for you? Or is it transforming your life because it's really a heart-level faith? You see, some of you are here this morning, and you've heard all the stories about Jesus' life and his death. And yet you have not yet received him as your substitutionary king. You see, he doesn't just die for everyone in general. He offers to substitute himself for you to pay the penalty that you deserve, but you have to receive his offer of substitution. Right? He won't force you to trade places with him. See, and part of receiving the substitute king requires that we might actually surrender to the sovereign king. You see, so often people are totally fine with letting Jesus die for them in their place, so long as that means they get to keep doing and living however they want. And yet that is not the offer Jesus is making. 
You see, he absolutely is willing to die in your place for your sins. He is absolutely willing to be your substitutionary king. But he must be your king. See, to receive the substitute king, you have to surrender to the sovereign king. And there's no way around it. So some of you, you're here this morning, and that's the invitation for you. You've spent a whole lot of your life living with a head-level knowledge about Jesus. And John shows you this picture of the real king. And he calls you not just to surrender, but to receive him as your substitute. And to put your faith in him as you lay down your arms, as you run to him for rescue. See, but for all of us this morning, there's not just a calling that we might receive and surrender to the sovereign king and the substitutionary king. There is this calling for us that we might live as transformed citizens in Jesus' strange kingdom. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not one brought about by political force. It's one that's brought about by the truth, the truth that's seen as his people live out the goodness of his kingdom ways and as they show the goodness of his kingly rule and reign. You see, so often, so often, Christians, we like believe this lie that like, we just like, if we can just like align ourselves with some political power, then we'll be able to finally like bring about like God's kingdom. And just like spoiler alert, that's never worked ever. Zero places in history when Christians have aligned themselves and tried to use political power to bring about God's kingdom. It never works. It never does. Because Jesus' kingdom is not like any of the kingdoms of this world. He's a strange king. He doesn't fit the molds. The power of his kingdom. It's not like the power of the kingdoms of this world. And so the calling of his people is that we might live right as citizens of his strange kingdom, as people who are free from the love of power and free from the fear of losing what power we have, who are instead characterized by resting in God's sovereign power over everything, and so who are free to lay down our own power for the good of others, just as our king did for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so grateful for the reminder this morning in your word that you indeed are the true king. And even though you stand before Pilate, you stood before him mocked and beaten, rejected by the people you very came to save, you indeed were still ruling and reigning as king. You're not just the true king, Jesus. You are the sovereign king. You are our strange king. You are our substitute king. And might we, as your people, surrender what power we have over to you. Let me trust in your sovereign good authority 
and when we live free of the power of the kingdoms of this world so that we might show the power of your kingdom, Jesus. Amen.